Hello, and welcome to Across the States. I'm your host, Matt Fisher, bringing you the premier state policy podcast. And today, we have a special edition. The Rich States, Poor States Report is out. The 14th edition. And joining me today are the co-authors of Rich States, Poor States. Jonathan Williams, Alec Chief Economist and Executive Vice President of Policy, and Lee Schalk, Alex Senior Director and Head of the Center for State Fiscal Reform. Welcome, guys. How are you doing? Thanks, Matt. Thanks for having us. Great to be here. Well, thank you guys for coming in again. I'm looking forward to this discussion. Let's kick things off, though, with a little bit of background, a little bit of context. For those who may just be learning about rich states, poor states for the first time, what can you guys tell us about this report? What is rich states, poor states, and what does it entail? Well, it's, uh, it's been a collaborative effort now for 14 years with uh, Reagan Economist and our Board of Advisors uh, member, Arthur Laffer, and our good friend, Stephen Moore, Economist. And we wanted to put this together as a guide for state legislators and businesses and concerned citizens and taxpayers all across the country for a way for them to rank their states and compare their states' economic outlook and economic performance uh, with each other, you know, drawing from the concept uh, Justice Brandeis, perhaps not a a friend to free markets, but still came up with the uh, the coin of the phrase laboratories of democracy. And of course, that's how we view our states and this necessary competitive federalism that uh, occurs out there every single day across our states. And so giving individuals across the country a reliable, academically proven guide for the policies that matter, that shape the future growth of our states and our country, and give people an idea of what we can do to improve our state if we want to improve our economic outlook. And this is a publication that we put out every single year. It's been used by state lawmakers across the country as they make critical policy decisions that affect their constituents. And what we're really looking at here are variables that include various tax rates, regulatory burdens, and labor policies. And I think one of the the great pieces that we also put together is our online companion tool at richstatespoorstates.org where any American can go online and use the same tools that state legislators are using for over a decade now to adjust their state tax policy variables and find those real-world policy solutions that can really encourage economic growth and security. So the Rich States, Poor States report explores and investigates every state across the map using, as you just said, 15 policy variables. Now, What are these variables, Lee, and how do they measure the strength and vitality of each respective state? Yeah, that's right. So our report looks at both economic outlook and economic performance. So the way we measure economic outlook, as I mentioned, there are a host of tax-related variables, right? So we have highest marginal personal income tax rates. We've got the highest marginal corporate income tax rates, things like property tax burden, whether or not a state imposes a death tax What's the sales tax burden? What's the remaining tax burden? In other words, taking revenues that are collected in state and local taxes, excluding personal income, corporate income, property sales, and severance taxes. We also look at things like, what is the state minimum wage? Does a state have a right-to-work law that ensures worker freedom? What type of debt payments is a state making? And also tax and expenditure limits. And then in terms of economic performance, we're really looking at what has 
taken place in the previous year in terms of GDP, migration, and jobs growth in a state? And I think, you know, Matt, we uh, we get asked often as we travel the country in a non-COVID environment, usually in 35 states plus a year, doing testimony and other events to talk about the research in rich states, poor states, and how to make your state more competitive. We get asked, you know, why do you choose the 15? The answer is, I mean, while you could have 1,000 variables, and we know that that many things affect economic growth, that everything affects uh, future growth and, and jobs and, and GDP and population migration decisions to some degree. But why Dr. Laffer and why Alec and Steve Moore, we came together you know, nearly 15 years ago and have stuck with this methodology ever since the first edition is you know, we, we know that there are variables that matter for economic growth directly based on the academic research, based on 50 years of history that Dr. Laffer has working on this. But I think just as importantly, and we know there's this proliferation of different indices measuring states because people know that there's inherent need to know how your state does versus your neighbors and states across the country. But the thing that I think differentiates our ranking from so many out there in rich states, poor states, is that these are variables that state lawmakers from Topeka to Lansing to Tallahassee to Augusta decide every year how they can change. You know, and, and to Lee's point, you can go to richstatespoorstates.org, and we actually have that adjust policies tool that state legislators that are sitting on the floor of their chamber can say, here's how we currently rank, here's how we'd like to rank, what would it take to get from 25 to 5, let's say like North Carolina has over the years, or some of these massive improvements. So there are things that legislators have direct control over, and that is key. So taking a look now at your state rankings for economic outlook, we see Utah, Oklahoma, and Florida at the top, with New York at the bottom. What are the consistent trends we are seeing here with the states at the top and the bottom of the rankings? Well, I think you uh, you really have, it's a differentiation of philosophies of how states would like to govern themselves. I mean, that's the beauty of federalism, is that the federal government is supposed to take that hands-off approach and allow states to lead and to govern and decide what type of policy is best and the mixes of policy that they think is best for their state. Uh, it's key and it's clear, you know, based on our rankings uh, and not just this in this 14th edition of rich states, poor states that we're just rolling out. But in previous editions, this top tier states, you know, call them the rich states, call them the prosperity states, the states that are growing, the states like Utah and Florida and Oklahoma, Wyoming, North Carolina, the top five are states that are really following the ALEC free market playbook of limited government free markets and allowing federalism to work. And, and it looks, you know, it's not just our theory that's playing out here, though, Matt. The proof is in the pudding, as Lee said. You know, where are jobs going? You know, where are where is GDP growing the fastest? Where are people, as we often say, where are they voting with their feet and moving to? And it turns out they're leaving some of the states at the bottom, like New York and California, that have seen big out migration of as Americans decide to go towards more economic opportunity. And the philosophy of the top five or the top ten states in rich states, poor states, not only in 2021, but in every edition, has been a desire to make that state a better quality of life at a lower cost of living and become a more market-based pro-business state. And it's, uh, the proof is in the pudding, as we've said. We always end up talking a lot about Utah because they're ranked first place again. And they've been ranked first place in every single edition of Rich States, Poor States. That's because they do a lot of things right. They've got flat and low income taxes they protect the right to work. They avoid a, a death tax in their state. Another thing that Utah is known for, 
And a really positive trend that we've seen other states take note of is their truth in taxation law to keep property taxes low by getting taxpayers involved in public hearings and public notices. And really what this does is it adds transparency for local governments who are attempting to rake in more dollars in property taxes. We've seen ALEC, the Tax and Fiscal Policy Task Force, created a model policy based on this law. And Kansas actually, in a bipartisan fashion, adopted its own truth in taxation law just this year. Looking at Florida and Oklahoma, our numbers two and three states this year, you know, these are also right to work states. Florida obviously has no personal income tax at the state level. They're also ranked third in our public employees per 10,000 residents, which means they don't have a bloated government bureaucracy or state public government worker workforce. Oklahoma, a couple of highlights for them, you know, they've got the second lowest property tax burden in the nation. They keep their minimum wage low. It's at that 725 federal rate. And they also have lower state debt relative to the 50 states. And Matt, uh, on on the Utah point, because I think Lee's point is exactly right on this, and that 14 years at number one is such a tremendous accomplishment going through several different gubernatorial administrations, different leadership in the state legislature. Of course, currently, it's our ALEC National Chairman, our good friend, uh, Senate President Stuart Adams. Before him, Wayne Niederhauser, Senate President. We've had some great legislative and gubernatorial leadership in Utah over the years. But what they've accomplished, whether it's truth and taxation, whether it's just being ahead of the curve on financial ready Utah, taking an inventory of federal funds coming in to say, what would we do as a state if the federal government reduces federal funds to our state to be autonomous and to make sure we're living within our means? But then, really, one of the biggest issues in state policy out there that Utah was way ahead of the curve was they adopted pension reform uh, years before it hit the headlines with the Detroit and the Puerto Rico bankruptcy, years before so many other people were talking about that issue. Utah had already got to the table, figured out the solution for them, and it started to transition more to the 401k defined contribution model, of course, that Alec has talked about for years. And so just such an innovative policy development uh, philosophy around Utah that it just deserves to add an exclamation point for how many good things that Utah has done. And of course, we recognize them now 14 years in a row. And Matt, I know you asked too about what are some of the negative trends, right? So we've touched on the top three states, but the bottom three states this year, New York at number 50, Vermont at 49, and New Jersey at 48, quite the opposite of the top three states where we see some of the highest income tax rates, no right to work laws. They do collect estate or inheritance taxes. They've got outlandish levels of state debt. And so we really see in this report such a stark contrast between the top and bottom states for economic outlook. Now, something that has played a major role in the rankings this year were statewide referendums, where voters decide the direction of state fiscal policy by ballot measures. You get the signatures, you go to the polls, you vote. Now, how do these referendums in states like California and Illinois impact their final rankings? And do voters generally side with pro-growth policies? Yeah, it definitely varies across the states, but you mentioned California. That was one of the bright spots when it came to voter referendums. You know, California, while they rank 45th in economic outlook, they actually rank 19th for lowest property tax burden. So property taxes on average are 
pretty decent in California. Not too bad, but voters had a chance with Prop 15 to repeal the limit on property taxes that were put in place back in the 1970s. And they rejected that to protect themselves and protect their wallets. Illinois, uh, in the same vein, you know, Governor Pritzker there seems hell-bent on moving away from the flat tax in Illinois. But uh, that's actually ingrained in the state constitution, and that's why it had to go before voters. Now, voters, fortunately, in 2020, they rejected this overwhelmingly. And so, you know, I think in both of these situations, had these measures gone a different way, you would have seen a shift in the rankings. And, you know, there's a couple other states where voters have weighed in this year. Arizona's one where it, it didn't quite go the way that a, a pro-growth-minded voter would want, where Proposition 208 was passed, and that's going to raise the top income tax rate in Arizona from 45 to 8%. I will mention that that is currently undergoing a court challenge. Finally, in Colorado, Proposition 116 was passed by voters in November to lower the personal income tax rate. And so Colorado actually has the 13th lowest personal income tax rate of any state and a pretty competitive tax environment. And it's kind of an interesting takeaway, and Lee's exactly right on on those points. (laughs) It's a little bit counterintuitive what happened. In fact, you had some of the bluest states politically in America, like uh, California and Illinois, deciding against tax increases, and yet you had some politically fairly moderate or conservative states traditionally, like Arizona and uh, even in the case of uh, in Florida, where they raised the state minimum wage, uh, scaling up to $15 an hour if the legislature and others allow that to go forward, that voters passed. And so it was a little bit of a head scratcher if you didn't follow some of the issues more in detail, but no doubt about it that California and Illinois dodged a major bullet by rejecting those tax increases Arizona, I think there's a lot of work to be done. I know we work very closely with Senate President Fan and Senate President Pro Tem Vince Leach, chair of the tax uh, committee. I know they're looking for ways to continue to try to make Arizona more competitive. And, you know, that's what's kept Arizona in the top tier states for a long time. Unfortunately, though, the penalty of voters passing that proposition to raise the income tax by nearly 80% in Arizona this last fall has knocked Arizona out of the top 10 in rich states, poor states for the first time in a number of years. And on top of that, Jonathan, if you look at our ranking for their top marginal personal income tax, they fell 29 places just due to Prop 208. So they dropped from 13th to 42nd for the highest marginal personal income tax rate. We all know that the reason lawmakers craft policy is to produce positive results. At the end of the day, the numbers do not lie. So what do the stats from this past year and beyond reveal about states that adopt or reject pro-growth policies? Well, I think one of the, the biggest takeaways, as we've said from day one in this report, and we knew it based on economic theory, we knew it based on other people's studies, but from 2007 when we kicked off this project to today, it has remained crystal clear that there is a connection between a state that has more competitive economic policies 
in a state that is growing economically, whether you look at GDP growth, jobs growth, or as we say, the phenomenon of people and Americans voting with their feet away from high tax states and states that have bad policies, states that rank in the bottom tier of rich states, poor states, and the states uh, on the other side of the equation, of course, the states that are recipients of that. And whether you slice and dice the data and look at, let's say, one of the most key variables, I think, since we have 15, you know, we have some that I think matter perhaps more than others, such as income taxes on personal and business taxes, right to work status, as Lee talked about, having a state level death tax. And when you start to look at the data and separate out states, let's say the nine states without a personal income tax versus the states that have the highest tax rate, and this is something we do in every edition of rich states, poor states, there is always a growth premium associated with being a no income tax state. And that's, of course, why we've seen the discussion continue to bubble up across the country. Even this year in Mississippi, we had the Mississippi House on a bipartisan basis vote to phase out their income tax under Speaker Philip Gunn's leadership. We had in West Virginia, their state Senate to vote to repeal their personal income tax. And they've seen the success of the states, the, the powerhouse states like Texas and Florida, the states that are gaining the most uh, people every single year. And they want to emulate that. Of course, same thing can be said about right to work and just a yes or no decision so many times around economic development and whether businesses will invest in one state versus another. Uh, and, and Matt, I know you know this, spending a lot of time in Michigan yourself. I mean, Michigan became a right to work state, my home state, because of that reason to become more competitive, to have those better economic results. And so if anything, rich states, poor states now over 14 years has continued to add to this pile of evidence, whether it's academic or policy evidence or anecdotal evidence, uh, what we know to be true, that taxes negatively impact economic growth and economic policies absolutely help determine the future of states. And Matt, I'll give you a specific example from several years ago, and that is North Carolina. So in 2013, North Carolina passed an historic tax reform package that flattened and lowered income taxes, eliminated the death tax, among other things. And before the passage of, of that package, we had always ranked North Carolina in the 20s. So they were 22nd in 2013. But every year since then, they've been in the top 10. So they quickly moved up to sixth. They've been ranked as high as second overall in the nation. And what we've also seen is in this time, North Carolina has experienced growth in their GDP and population. And so that's really not, not a surprising result when you pass such a comprehensive tax reform package. Part of that package was income taxes uh, for businesses. The rate was lowered from 6.9% to 2.5% today. And the results speak for themselves. I think another thing that we've seen just recently is the new Census Bureau data that was released, which really illustrates something that we've talked about at ALEC for a long time. And that is the fact that Americans continue to vote with their feet in favor of economic opportunity. And so we're seeing that uh, states like Texas, Florida, they've gained seats, they've gained US congressional seats, whereas Places like New York and Illinois have lost one. And I should also mention California has also lost a seat. But I think this comports very well with, with what we've been preaching for the past 14 editions of Rich States, Poor States. You know, going off what you just said there about this being the 14th edition, the 14th year of Rich States, Poor States, we now have a decade and a half almost worth of analysis and stats taking all of that into account. 
What have been the biggest winners and losers of the last decade among the states? What are some states that are consistently embracing pro-growth policies with results? And what states have rebounded and are now back on track? And are any states now underperforming or heading in that direction that we should take note of? Well, I think one important thing to look at is the fact that the nine states with no income tax have outperformed the nine states with the highest income tax rates. When you look at population, employment, and personal income growth, you know, another thing that's really interesting, we'll go back even before we were writing rich states, poor states. So over a 30-year period between 1961 and 1991, there were 11 states that adopted a personal income tax. And these states declined relative to the rest of the entire country when it came to population, employment, personal income, gross state product, even state and local tax revenues declined in these states. And so, you know, I would point to this as a really obvious trend. You know, Jonathan mentioned just in the past few months, we've seen efforts bubble up in places like Mississippi and West Virginia to try and repeal income taxes. And I think this is exactly why you see that, because legislators in these states are looking at these exact figures and they're saying, how can we jumpstart our state? How can we make sure that we've got a playing field where uh, economic growth is encouraged rather than having tax policies in place that can stifle that growth? I think, you know, the uh, one of the key takeaways from now 14 years of thinking about this is in a relatively short amount of time, how much states can change the trajectory of their prosperity and the amount of competitiveness in their state and going from losing people to gaining people in the course of a decade and a half uh, or vice versa in some cases because of the very policy decisions that state legislators debate about every year when they consider their budget and other policy items. And so I think it's awfully empowering for state legislators to think about it that way because I can tell you being a Michigan native, as I mentioned, you know, we had a decade's worth of, we call it a single state recession when Jennifer Granholm was governor in the last decade. And then Governor Rick Snyder came in in 2010 with more free market legislators. And they said, we have to do something differently. And people kind of scoffed at the idea that Michigan could ever turn it around because they said autos are gone for good. Manufacturing's on its way out. And uh, Michigan is a has-been state, a lot of people said. And of course, we rejected that. Thankfully, the legislative leadership and Governor Snyder rejected that. And they changed the course of history in Michigan because they learned from Indiana. They saw Mitch Daniels and Mike Pence and others, you know, become right to work state, cut taxes, become more competitive and prove that it can be done in, in what used to be called, you know, the Rust Belt in many cases. And Michigan can turn it around. If Michigan can turn it around, anybody can turn it around. And I think it's an optimistic note. But looking at some of the the big rankings changes, you know, for better or for worse, Lee mentioned one of the uh, the big ones. But uh, we've seen states move in both directions. Of course, North Carolina went from being you know middle of the pack before Governor McCrory and legislators like Speaker Tom Tillis, now Senator Tom Tillis who really enacted the gold standard of tax reform there, moved up to number five currently. You know, Indiana, I mentioned under Mitch Daniels and, and Mike Pence as governors, you know, moved up tremendously and sit at number six after being in the mid-20s, two of the, the biggest improvers 
over the course of rich states, poor states. You know, also though, states like you know Michigan, like Ohio, have seen some big improvements because they've continued to chop away at the factors that were holding them back when it comes to high taxes and big government policies. You look at the other side of the equation, and there's some you know not so encouraging developments. Uh, Harken back to the uh, the days that I uh, spent at the Virginia State Capitol in Richmond with then Speaker Bill Howell when Virginia ranked number three in economic outlook. Not that many years ago and uh, looked at the rankings today and, and Virginia is at number 17, almost not even making the top 20 after being a contention for the top space in America in economic outlook. And this is a factor of many things, but you just see what's happened in Richmond and kind of the progressive uh, vision for what's happened in recent sessions, and it's really no no question why. I mean, Colorado is another state uh, used to rank number two in early editions of rich states, poor states. Now all the way down to number twenty, uh, because as we often say, one of the key lessons is in many cases you can fall behind by simply standing still, and sometimes you can also make the unforced policy errors that hasten that decline in the rankings. You can't discuss the year 2020 without discussing the pandemic. And obviously that played a major role in not only the year, but also in the report documenting the events of the last 365 days. Now, how did the pandemic play a role in helping or hindering pro-growth policy in the states? And did locking down states truly hurt state economies as many predicted? Wow. Yeah. Uh, I guess we have an hour for that question, right, Matt? Because that that was a lot of, uh, there's a lot of digging to do there as to how states have uh, treated this uh, very, uh, hopefully, once in a lifetime challenge that we all confronted as a nation across the last year. And uh, we certainly saw the laboratories of democracy concept play out. And I think the uh, the wisdom of the, of the Trump administration at the time was to allow states to take a good leadership role and not to federalize so many of the decisions. And that would have been an easy inclination to do is have national mandates on a various uh, range of issues. But he allowed governors to make the decisions that he felt or that they felt were best for their constituents. And we can obviously play armchair quarterback at this point and have that luxury in many cases to say, were those decisions right or wrong? I mean, personally, I don't envy any chief executive that had to govern this last 12 to 15 months of just this uncertainty and the just, um, you know, like I said, hopefully once in a lifetime environment that we had to navigate. At the start of this, uh, we at ALEC put together a document called the Policy Prescriptions that our members and our policy team came together to give to legislators to give ideas as to how to navigate. Because you know, one of the biggest things was we all thought that we may, <laughs> only half joking, we'd have to rename this project Poor States, Poorer States last year because revenues were way down, of course, and we didn't know how bad they would be and for how long and how long it would take the economy to get moving again. Thankfully, the dire projection at the start were you know not as bad and didn't turn out to be nearly as bad as what we thought. And we saw a huge third quarter GDP growth, and that has propelled revenue collections to actually be up in calendar year 2020 versus down, which is remarkable turnaround. But at the start of it, legislators were just grappling with trying to find out good information, how bad the budget situation would be, and then how much would they have to come back and cut uh, to in order to balance their budget. As, as you know, 49 of the 50 states have a balanced budget requirement. 
And so uh, one of the things that the approach and philosophy we took at ALEC in this prescriptions idea and, and document of ideas across different task forces was, you know, as uh, the uh, as President Reagan, uh, I think, called an advisor, and this is a story recounted by Art Laffer, is, you know, don't just stand there, go undo something. And so instead of the inclination of government always growing during crisis periods, I think can be you know, correctly stated throughout the history of the United States, our idea was how can government come and take away barriers to reopen economies and reopen businesses and give both consumers and producers the confidence to go back and become part of normal life as soon as safely possible. And so things like COVID liability coverage when it comes to tort reform, and we've seen now uh, about 30 states pass the ALEC model that was developed by our civil justice task force in that space, or navigating how to handle your unemployment insurance trust fund and make sure that that's backfilled and, and, and ready for uh, that period uh, of uh, unemployment claims without going back to employers and asking for more. And those are just a couple of the 20 plus ideas that we came up with. But I have to say, I am extremely proud of the states, especially the states that rank well in rich states, poor states that have wanted to remain competitive during this period, that we came out the worst of it, let's all hope, with the vaccine rollout. We're seeing the numbers become very encouraging now. But I think we escaped the worst of this without long-lasting policy damage. We've only seen a couple of states substantially raise taxes during the pandemic, certainly New Jersey, and now it looks like New York and some others that are predictable states to raise taxes. Taxes, but by and large, it's very encouraging to see our system of federalism works, our laboratories of democracy work, and the men and women that work so hard in state legislators and with governors across the country to navigate this in the best way possible. Uh, it's great to see the outcomes uh, on the other side of it. Yeah, I think that's exactly right, Jonathan. And we've got to remember that every single state was just absolutely reeling from the pandemic. The height of it in April 2020, you know, the national unemployment rate was 14.8%. And we have seen prosperity states like Florida and South Dakota, they've done, they've experienced a recovery from COVID on their own, thanks to a very measured response to the virus, but also their pro-growth policies and their fiscal discipline. They really didn't need a federal bailout to accomplish this. Florida with no personal income tax. South Dakota, no personal or corporate income tax. Both states keep spending in check. Contrast that with places like New Jersey and New York, like you mentioned, Jonathan, both states demanding federal bailouts of their budgets, despite just out of control spending and some of the highest state tax burdens in the country. State lawmakers in New York and New Jersey, they were more than happy to pocket Americans' federal tax dollars while still seeking to raise taxes on their own constituents during the pandemic, really kind of the opposite of what we would prescribe. And, you know, interestingly enough, these states have some of the highest unemployment rates in the country right now. But if you look at Florida, their unemployment rate has fallen to 4.7% in March. South Dakota, actually with the lowest state unemployment rate at 2.9%. And then, as I mentioned, contrast that with New Jersey, 7.7% unemployment. This is a place where the governor was seeking to impose a $15,000 a day fine on uh, certain businesses that may not have closed and also passing a new tax on millionaires in September 2020. And then New York, uh, 50th in rich states, poor states for economic outlook. They've currently got an unemployment rate of 8.5%. And you know the governor, Governor Cuomo, is seeking a budget deal to raise the top marginal income tax rate to nearly 11%. 
And so, again, you see some states took a a strong uh, pro-growth free market, fiscally disciplined approach to the pandemic. They stuck to it, but other states doubled down. Uh, on their poor policies. And Matt, just to double down on what Lee said there around the bailout of states, because that was an effort that we did a lot of educating on this last year of just how worrisome that is whenever the federal government comes to try to bail out states that are in trouble. Certainly, you know, takes additional federal tax dollars to do that, but it sets a horrible incentive. And of course, we ended up losing that battle. Uh, We were able to hold it off through good educational efforts and and the right men and women down there on Capitol Hill throwing caution to the idea that we learned some tough lessons from a decade ago with the Obama bailout of states and what that meant with the strings that come with it, the loss of federalism and loss of state autonomy and flexibility around state spending decisions that came with federal dollars that in many cases outlasted the federal dollars that expired uh, with the Obama bailout of states. And fast forward to today, you know, while ALEC was recognized by people like uh, alumni member Congressman Jim Banks on, on Capitol Hill from Indiana saying ALEC was really the thought leader in helping to educate on the downsides of federal government bailing out states, you know, what we got was hundreds of billions of dollars in the, the so-called stimulus package uh, in March that was signed into law by President Biden to bail out states, to bail out cities, to send more money to school districts at a time, let's not forget, that state and local revenues were ahead in 2020 of where they were in 2019. So the whole idea that states were hurting for revenue, they couldn't balance their own books, I think is uh, very disingenuous by people that make that argument now that we have real data. And it's something now looking forward, we warned about the strings attached with federal money. Now, what did we see? We saw at the last minute, Senator Schumer and allegedly Senator Joe Manchin's amendment to the federal uh, bill, the ARPA bill, said that if states take the federal funds, they could not directly or indirectly reduce state taxes with that federal funding. And so now we're at the next frontier of this idea is, you know, what do we do to give states flexibility to handle their individual needs and tailor the solutions for their citizens without federal government overreach and overriding this idea of state competition? Well, Jonathan and Lee, this has been incredible stuff you guys have offered. I hope our listeners have enjoyed this episode. I'm sure they have. I have enjoyed it for one. If you are interested in learning more about the Rich States Poor States Report and finding out where your state ranks, go online to richstatespoorstates.org to find out more. Again, that's richstatespoorstates.org. Jonathan and Lee, thank you for coming on today. And to our listeners, thank you for tuning in. I'm your host, Matt Fisher, and I will see you again next time here on Across the States. Thank you for listening to Across the States, the leading state-focused policy podcast presented by the American Legislative Exchange Council, the premier free market organization of and for legislators. To learn more about our work or to make a tax-deductible donation, visit alec.org. Tell us what you think on Facebook and Twitter at Alec States. The views and opinions expressed on Across the States are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the American Legislative Exchange Council.